What's up, Lamb Fam? Welcome back to the Life After Miscarriage podcast, where we unapologetically chat the ins and outs of what life is actually like after miscarriage. I'm your host, Shelly Metling, and with four angel babies myself and one rainbow baby here on earth, I have created a platform for you guys to share your stories. So sit back, relax, get ready to relate, laugh, and cry as we get real on what life is actually like after miscarriage in the 21st century. Hello, everyone. We have Melinda Lashley on today's episode. I'm so excited to get to know a little bit more about her and her journey. Melinda, I'm just going to toss it at you. Start wherever you'd like. So first, I wanted to say thank you, Shelly, for having me on today. I have listened to your podcast from the very beginning, like 2018. Um, That was kind of in the depths of my journey. Um, So it was relieving and inspirational to be able to come across your platform and I know that your life has changed a lot since 2018 and how you keep this all going and spinning Um, I just want you to know that as a part of this community that we are so grateful that you're dedicated to putting out such information and positivity so thank you for that Um, and I guess I'll kind of give the rundown of statistics because I always thought that was helpful Um, as I listen to these podcasts to know how I compared to others. So I am 32 years old. My husband is 33. We are high school sweethearts and we've been married for 10 years now. We are about six years into our trying to conceive journey. Um, And as I guess we'll talk through, it's been filled with lots of ups and downs. Um, But I guess it goes back about 15 years ago. Um, after we graduated from college, my husband got a job in St. Louis and we moved from our hometown in Florida. Um, and we, uh, you know, we moved there not having any friends or family or any kind of support system. And within a few weeks of moving there, I actually thought I was pregnant. And it turns out that stress can just do some really funky things to your body. I was not pregnant, but um, it implanted this seed that um, really, I guess, captured this desire I didn't realize I had. Um, I was only 22 at the time, so we were super young. We had no money, obviously no friends or family or a support system. Um, But I remember feeling disappointed that I was not pregnant. Um, So... It just was not the right time and we were too young and, you know, life kind of moved on and we agreed that it just, um, we needed to wait. So come October of 2013, we were on vacation and I remember looking over at my husband and I was like, okay, like it's time to get off birth control and just see what happens. Um, And he was scared. (laughs) Um, He thought this was going to happen right away, but for some reason I had this inclination that maybe it wouldn't be all that easy. Um, and it wasn't. So it took us about six months to get pregnant, which looking back now, I'm like, six months is nothing. But in the thralls of it, it just felt like forever. Um, We were 25 and 26 at the time. So I just thought, you know, we had been trying to prevent getting pregnant for a long time at that point. Um, And it just seemed like, why would this not work? Um, So in May of 2014, we got our first positive pregnancy test. Um, I mean, at that point, I had just been begging God, like, every month, please let this be the month, Um, and it finally was, and I was in complete shock, you know, it was fun to be able to share that news with him, Um, but honestly, none of our friends were 
married yet at all. Um, and we were kind of the first to be on this journey. So we were the first to try to get pregnant and, um, I didn't really know much. Um, so I had scheduled our first appointment with our doctor for our eight week ultrasound. And I started spotting a few days before that. Um, I called the doctor to kind of let them know to figure out what was going on. And they told me that spotting was normal. Um, so I went with that and believed it. Um, but little did I know that it, it was not normal. So we went in for the ultrasound and, um, you know, we got those dreaded words from the ultrasound tech that I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. Um, and that was just devastating, obviously. Um, uh, but I, I guess I felt naive, like how could I not realize that this spotting meant that we were losing this baby? Um, so I was just really wasn't ready to accept that. Um, so I guess we went in for the eight weeks expecting that, you know, we would be that far along, but I had had a missed miscarriage. So the baby stopped growing at five weeks, five days. And we were given the option to either let my body naturally continue the miscarriage or to um, have a DNC. And honestly, at the time I thought, well, I guess my body's already doing this. So let's just wait it out and see what happens. Um, and I guess like a few days into that wait, I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, we ended up getting a second opinion and it really made things even more complicated. Um, the second doctor did the ultrasound and they found two sacs, but no heartbeats. So it was like the question like, well, was it twins? Was it not? Um, but they did determine that the pregnancy was not viable. And at that point I did have a DNC. Um, that obviously for me, it ended up being a better solution than just naturally allowing it to happen. Um, our doctor was a part of a, um, a chain of hospitals that is Catholic run. Um, so the hospital actually takes the remains and buries them at a local cemetery. And I guess, you know, later in the story, this will all wrap around, but, um, the ability to like go and have somewhere to visit and find closure after that miscarriage was super helpful for us. I didn't realize in the moment what that would mean. Um, so, you know, it was a shitty situation, but in the end, um, I, I don't know if wording it the right way that um, it worked out for the best because I wouldn't have wanted that to happen. Um, but the fact that it worked out the way it did, it was a blessing in disguise. Um, so that was in 2014. And um, my husband and I obviously did not grieve that the same way. I think a lot of women say that. Um, for me, it was, you know, I was in my 20s. I didn't understand why this had happened or how this could happen. Um, and I spent a lot of time just in bed crying. And my husband, you know, got to the point where he just wanted to move forward. And we didn't really talk about it. Um, and there came a day where I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And so um, we sat there and I realized I had never actually asked him how he felt. 
and he started opening up about it. And that really was a turning point for our relationship. I got to understand, you know, why he was feeling the way he was. And um, he got to, you know, get a better idea of why I felt the way I did. Um, and I remember we named our baby. Um, and we actually took a trip out to the cemetery. One of many at that point. Um, we visited. And that really opened up this dialogue about moving forward. Um, my initial reaction was like, well, we have to try again. Um, but that was not what was best for us in our relationship. Um, so we ended up going to the doctor a few times after that, just as follow-ups from the DNC and check-ins to figure out what was going on. And we kept getting the same answer. And that answer was, you guys are so young, um, guarantee the next time I see you, you'll be pregnant. And so that kind of stuck with us for a while, especially my husband. You know, he was like, there's nothing wrong with us, so let's just keep trying. Um, and in 2016, we actually decided to move back to Florida. Um, we thought, uh, this would be a, you know, a fresh start. Um, and with that move, we decided um, that we'd kind of hold off on figuring out like what was going on and trying again. And um, it's crazy now to think that I let, I guess it was three years go by without getting any answers. Um, but to be really honest and open, um, my husband and I went through a super rough patch during that time. Um, to the point where he told me that he didn't want to have children anymore, that he was tired of trying. Um, he didn't want to continue to live this cycle of disappointment. Um, and that really it was a devastating, another devastating blow to me. You know, I thought to myself, like, how could he say that? Like, we've been trying now for several years. We lost a baby. I didn't understand those feelings that he was having. And it came to a head one day. And I thought, um, you know, I am facing a choice here. I have to decide if I want to leave this man that I really love because I really want a child. Or am I willing to give up on my dream and not have children? And thankfully, I was able to convince him to go see a marriage therapist who actually specialized in infertility. Um, and there he agreed to at least go get some testing done. Um, he didn't agree to pursue any kind of treatment or follow-up, but it, it was an agreement that we could figure out at least what was going on. And from that point, we could decide how we would move forward. So. Um, our journey, you know, deals obviously with loss, but it deals with infertility as well. Um, so we went and saw a reproductive endocrinologist and found out that we suffer from male factor infertility. Um, and that was a huge blow. I had been diagnosed with hypothyroidism. So I knew that I had thyroid issues and for a long time, I kind of chalked up our fertility issues to that, that maybe my thyroid was being mismanaged, that the miscarriage had been a result of that. 
So when we got the news that our issue was male factor, I was somewhat relieved. You know, that burden wasn't solely on me, but I was also so devastated for my husband because I had been carrying that burden for so long and I knew what that felt like. Um, I didn't want him to have to take on those feelings. So um, it took a little bit of time to work through all of that. Um, and I guess once we had the answers, it was hard to, it was hard for him to say, okay, well, we're not going to figure out what we can do. So we went back to the RE um, just to discuss what we could do. Um, and she gave us the option of um, IVF with ICSI. She mentioned that IUIs would not be worth our time or money and that we needed to go straight for IVF. So in, I guess it was April of 2018, we got that news. And again, we took some time to process what that all meant. Um, the cost was obviously a hindrance. They quoted us, I think it was $26,000, and they gave us a 60% success rate. And at the time, that just felt not doable. Um, I don't know that we were, obviously, we didn't have $26,000 to spend on fertility treatment. And to think that it was only a 60% success just kind of felt crazy. So we decided to start looking at alternatives to growing our family. Um, we looked at adoption, embryo adoption, um, and then frankly, just what would life look like being childless? Um, we had quite a few friends who had approached those different avenues to parenthood. So we reached out to all of them and got a good feel for what their journey had looked like. And, um, you know, I think sometimes until you ask somebody what their journey looked like, they don't share all of the hard details. You get a surface view of what things look like, but, um, it was an interesting perspective to hear, you know, all of the ups and downs of what they'd been through. So after we talked through all of that, we actually decided that we were going to go with embryo adoption. And for those who might not be familiar with that, that is when a couple who has gone through IVF has extra embryos that they do not intend to use. Um, and instead of destroying them or donating them to science, they actually choose to donate them or adopt them out to another couple. So for us, that would have cut out the process of an egg retrieval part of IVF, which also reduces the cost. Um, and then you just go straight to transferring the embryo. Um, it also, you know, with the cost being significantly less um, is a bonus, but you also have a little sense of um, success that this couple successfully transferred embryos and they had successful pregnancies. So um, you're going into it with a little more optimism and you get a little more confidence. So I found a Facebook group that has to deal with embryo adoption and we actually matched with a couple within a few days of starting to look into this process. Um, this couple had experienced secondary infertility and they had a set of twins as a result of the IVF cycle that they had done. Um, and they actually were expecting a miracle baby um, as we were talking any day. 
And so they knew that the leftover embryos that they had, they were not going to use, and they wanted them to be donated to a family. Um, so they were looking for a semi-open relationship, which is what we had hoped for. Um, this would give our you know, potential future children the opportunity to have a relationship with their siblings and then any kind of medical information that may be needed down the road there was access to. So these embryos were frozen in Jacksonville. Uh, we live in Tampa um, and our donors felt like it was really important for us to meet with their doctor. So we ended up doing um, a teleconference with the doctor just to um, understand what the process was like and um, the donors were super adamant that they did not want the embryos to be transferred. There can be a lot of risk in that and so they wanted any kind of, uh, when I say transferred, they didn't want the embryos transferred to another clinic, so meaning like shipping. Um, there can be a lot of risk in embryos being destroyed that way. So they were really adamant that they wanted any kind of transfers to occur at their clinic. So um, in August of 2018, we went into this call with the doctor thinking that we were going to um, be adopting these embryos from this couple. And at the end of the call, um, that was not what our plan looked like. Um, the doctor started asking us about our medical history and what it brought us to him. And he kind of stopped us midway in the conversation was like, well, why in the world aren't you guys doing IVF yourself? We were the perfect candidates. We were under 30. We had no significant health issues. Um, and he was able to guarantee us that if my husband had one sperm in his sample, that he would be able to retrieve that sperm and that he would be able to successfully create an embryo. Um, so, you know, our answer back to him was, well, we aren't doing this ourselves because frankly, the cost is just not attainable for us. Um, and so we had talked about what we had been quoted before um, and he kind of laughed and he was like, okay, well, before you decide to jump into embryo adoption, I just want you to know that the cost, the cost at our clinic is much closer to like $12,000 a cycle as opposed to 26,000. And the success rate that we can offer is 80%. So, um, you know, looking back at the success rate at the first clinic of 60%, it's actually really good. It just felt like a lot of money to be spending on a 60% chance. So when he told us it was, you know, almost half the cost and a better success rate, um, we talked it over, honestly, like maybe an hour um, and just decided that, okay, like instead of adopting these embryos, we're going to give IVF a, a shot ourselves. And I will point out that we were really lucky at this point. Um, I think we were four years into our journey and our parents had offered to provide um, assistance financially to help us on whatever path we chose. Um, so super grateful that they stepped up and um, had the means to be able to do that because honestly, none of what we're about to go into would be possible. Um, so it was just interesting that we went from being completely devastated in April of 2018, like, oh my gosh, we're not going to ever be able to have children, to, wow, we have a plan in August, and this is how we're going to move forward. So anyone who has experienced infertility knows that nothing is fast, like absolutely nothing. It's all about waiting. Um, so to begin an, any kind of IVF journey, 
um, both partners have to have um, blood work completed. So for us, that took several months. We started that in September of 2018. And by the time it was all said and done, um, we ended up not having the clear to go move forward until almost January of 2019. In that time, there were so many things that came up. Um, my blood work indicated that I had an antibody called the big M. And if you do any kind of research on that online, like nothing comes up. So there was a lot of uh, re-blood re draws to figure out and narrow down what exactly it was. But we later discovered that my husband was the carrier of the antigen. And during our first pregnancy in 2014, he had passed that on genetically to the baby and my body had started to develop antibodies. So the key here was to determine whether or not if I got pregnant again, um, would, you know, and he passed that antigen on, would my body create um, antibodies that would essentially destroy or um, make the pregnancy unsuccessful. So um, obviously that was scary and there was a lot of information to try to figure out regarding that, but we ended up meeting with a maternal fetal specialist to discuss, you know, what could happen if that was the case. Um, and we were told that if the embryo survived, that my body would likely continue to produce antibodies and that there would be a risk that uh, we would have to do an inner uterine blood transfusion. And of course, that just felt like another curveball, you know, a WTF moment, like what, <laughs> why? Um, and we had to kind of figure out, well, is this worth it? I, honestly, at the time, it felt like a sign from the universe, from God, like telling us that maybe this wasn't the path we were supposed to go down. Um, so we had to do just a lot of self-reflection to decide if this was the right option or not. Um, and one thing to note here is that the specialist, the MFM, she did state that she strongly suggested if we did move forward with IVF that we only transfer one embryo at a time, only, if, only because if this um, interuterine blood transfusion was necessary, if there was twins, it would just complicate things even further. So uh, we kind of took that information, went back to our IVF doctor, and felt pretty confident that you know, we could move forward with IVF. So um, in addition to this whole antibody thing, I had issues with um, antibodies for the MMR, so measles, mumps, rubella, for some reason. I had had these shots you know, prior in my life, but my body was having a hard time creating antibodies for it. And unfortunately, this is one of the immunizations that our clinic required before we can move forward. Um, and then I got the flu and just so many things derailed it. Um, but by mid-January of 2019, we were finally wrapping up all of our testing and we began our first round of IVF. So our clinic requires that you start each cycle with birth control um, and that takes a few weeks and then you have to do a mock transfer and monitoring appointments and the shots. So that all began in February of 2019. Um, and wow, it is overwhelming and life consuming. And honestly, unless you have experienced it, you just have no idea what goes into an IVF cycle. 
um, I feel so grateful for the science and to have access to such amazing medical care, but I would never wish IVF on anybody. Um, the financial and emotional and physical toll that it takes on a person and a couple is just dramatic and life-changing. Um, and since this podcast is not about IVF, I'm going to skip some of the details here, but um, if anybody that's listening is considering IVF or about to start a cycle and need someone to talk to, honestly, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm an open book about it. I'm happy to talk about my clinic and the protocol and how my body reacted, all of that. Um, I know that those were details that I really needed when I was going through that. So I'm, again, happy to share. Uh, but at the end of the day, they retrieved 27 eggs, 22 of those fertilized, and we had eight embryos make it to day five, and they were frozen. Unfortunately, we had another setback. I experienced mild OHSS, which is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, as a result of the retrieval. Um, so the doctor recommended freezing our embryos and giving my body a break from all the hormones instead of just doing a fresh transfer. So meaning five days after they created the embryo, sticking the embryo back in. So instead, our embryos were frozen at day five. And we decided um, a few months later to do our first transfer. So that transfer took place in June of 2019. Um, and I guess I, again, I was naive to think like this IVF cycle had gone perfectly. We had eight embryos. That was an amazing number. Um, we were young and healthy. So why would this not work? So. Um, we did the transfer in June and 12 days later, we had our HCG drawn and I have to admit I'm a cheat and I pee on sticks. So five days after the transfer, I started taking home pregnancy tests and we started getting faint positives and they just continued to get darker and darker. So I thought for sure this had worked and was so excited. Uh, but we got that call from our nurse, the dreaded 3 p.m. call that said, I have good news and I have not such good news. And the good news is your beta came back at 45, which means that the embryo implanted and you're pregnant. But the bad news is that we like to see betas at at least 50 by this point at minimum. So uh, they asked us to retest our HCG two days later. And the goal would be for it to have doubled at that time. Um, but I just had this feeling once I heard that the HCG was 45, that this embryo was not going to make it. Um, but we went back two days later, uh, got the 3 PM call and the beta had dropped down to, I think it was 25 at that point. So, um, unfortunately I got caught up in what we like to call beta hell, um, I had to have four betas drawn before my HCG went down below 15, which is when my clinic considers you to not be pregnant anymore. But in the meantime, I had to continue taking all of the hormones and the progesterone shots um, until that beta went down below that. Um, and <laughs> it was interesting. Um, you know, physically, my nurse was like, this is going to just be a heavy period. Um, you probably aren't even going to notice anything. Um, and wow, 
was she way off base? I mean, I'm somebody that has heavy periods to begin with, but this was, this was not that. Um, so I stopped the medication and I think it was within five days of stopping the medication, I started bleeding. And I remember I woke up in the middle of the night one day or one night and um, I was just hunched over the toilet in so much pain. I probably sat there for an hour and at one point I passed a large clot and I just knew that that was that embryo and um, that was my baby. And it just felt so different from my first miscarriage. I was numb and I hate to admit that I wasn't as emotional, um, but I guess I had been through it before at that point and it had been several years. So I had learned how to cope and manage my grief. And I think it helped that we also had additional embryos. So I knew that we had the possibility to try again. Um, and I thought that, okay, like I can put this in a little box and I can move forward. Uh, but honestly, that was not the case. Um, it took me several months to really get over that second loss. Um, you work so hard to, um, you know, go through IVF. You put your body and your mind through so much to produce these embryos. And anytime you see a, a positive pregnancy test, like you immediately start thinking of the future. Um, so honestly, at that point, um, I didn't know if I wanted to do another transfer. I was questioning, you know, was it my body? Um, did we need to have a surrogate? Like, you know, what were we going to do moving forward? Because I certainly was not going to go through another loss. So we went and met with our RE and kind of laid out all of those concerns and questions. Um, and, you know, his answer was, okay, I know that this is disappointing. And I know that you're devastated about this transfer, quote unquote, failing. Um, but I want you to look at it this way, that the embryo implanted. And so that means that your body works. It's just a matter that the embryo probably was not genetically sound. Um, and our embryos are not tested. So, you know, then we went into this whole rabbit hole of, well, should we have our embryos tested before we do another transfer? Um, and our doctor at the time really encouraged us that we should just try again without um, testing them. Because unfortunately, that would mean we'd have to have our embryos thawed and then tested and then refrozen. And then each time we would go to use an embryo, they would have to be thawed again. And each time you do that, you mess with the integrity of the embryo. So you don't want to do that. Um, so we um, decided in December of 2019 that we were ready to try again. So, um, you know, the question was like, do we do a different protocol? Like what, you know, how are we gonna make this look different than the last time? Um, and I took it really serious and decided that if we were gonna do this, um, you know, financially, this was gonna be a lot again. Um, and I didn't want to disappoint anybody. That was a big feeling I had. You know, our parents had 
you know, invested this money to help us. And I felt like I had let everybody down the first time. Um, and so leading up to this second transfer, I wanted to do everything possible. So I literally threw everything at it. I wanted to know at the end of the day that I had tried everything. So um, I drank the bone broth. I did the weekly acupuncture. I drank the pomegranate juice. I ate the pineapple core, the Brazilian nuts, had the McDonald's fries post-transfer, um, ate warm foods, kept my feet warm, like any old wives' tale that was out there. I tried it. Um, and the other demand that I had from my RE for this last transfer was that I was not willing to put all of these hormones in my body and do these daily injections unless we transferred to embryos. And despite what the MFM had told us, you know, almost a year and a half before that, um, I was willing to take that chance. So on December 20th of 2019, um, we transferred to embryos and again, I could not help myself. So I started peeing on sticks at about day five, um, post-transfer. So that actually made it Christmas morning and I was so excited to be able to wake up and I was feeling hopeful, um, but I did not get a positive. So that kind of dampered that day. Uh, but I told myself, okay, um, it's really early, so let's just wait it out. Um, so I tested the next day and I thought I might've seen a faint positive and then continued testing and the lines just kept getting darker and darker. Um, so we went for our first beta on December 31st and our results came back from the lab that afternoon. And the beta for that, our first beta for that transfer um, came back at 736, which was way different than the 45 we got from our first transfer in June. Um, so we were super optimistic. Honestly, that was the best New Year's Eve I've had in a really long time. Um, and then our second beta came back at 1,833. Um, so for us, those numbers were just completely mind-blowing. Um, so we had an ultrasound scheduled at six weeks with our RE, um, and I started spotting just days before that appointment. Um, and I swear the PTSD kicked in, and I just had a meltdown and was like, this is all happening again. Um, I was just flooded with fear about you know, losing this pregnancy. Um, but fortunately, we went in for our six-week ultrasound and everything looked good. And they actually found two heartbeats, um, which was just, man, I wish I could record that moment because we had gone into so many ultrasounds and had never actually heard a heartbeat. Um, so the first time you hear that, I think it's something that you remember forever. Um, and um, I'm really excited to share now that we are 35 weeks pregnant with fraternal twins. Um, and I just think back about how far we've come. It's been six years of infertility and loss. And now we are literally weeks away from meeting our two rainbow babies. Um, and this pregnancy, honestly, has had its own share of 
scares and worries. And um, I certainly never imagined being pregnant during a worldwide pandemic. Um, but I, you know, I could complain, I could complain about all sorts of things. Um, but I just won't because I'm not going to let fear or COVID or anything steal the joy out of this. Um, but I think it's important to note that there is not one day that I haven't thought about the possibility of what could happen just based on the triggers of everything that we've gone through. And um, I think it's important to note that it's totally normal. Uh, I mean, maybe it's not normal, but I, you know, I still, every day when I go to the bathroom, I'm looking to see if there's blood. And obviously at this point, like, if our babies were to come today, like everything would be fine. But, you know, it's been 35 weeks of that. Um, and I don't know if that will ever go away, even when we're not trying anymore. I feel like I will still look to see if there is blood when I wipe. Um, and that's just such a, a sad reality for everyone that has experienced infertility. Um, you know, part of the pain of miscarriage that never, you know, it, it just doesn't go away. And I think it lives with you um, and it changes you. Um, and I, I like to think that through all of this sorrow, um, the best part of it is that I'm a more empathetic person. And that's not just towards those that are experiencing pregnancy loss, but you know, it's helped me to acknowledge that everybody out there in the world is battling something and everyone is grieving something. Um, so I like to say that if that's the lesson that God wanted me to learn, then lesson learned. Congratulations. I don't know if you feel this way, but um, like almost towards the end of pregnancy after miscarriage, the anxiety gets worse. I don't know if you feel that, but for me, it was. It was like really bad at the beginning and then really bad at the end. Yeah, I would say probably week, I don't know, 24, I was able to relax a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, this pregnancy has not been easy. We've had different complications that have come up and worries. Um, we thought for sure that one of the babies had growth restrictions. So there was this concern that we would have to deliver early. So it just felt like there was never really a time during this pregnancy that I was just able to enjoy the fact that I was yeah. pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard. <laughs> it but is. You're badass, just like everyone else here. And I'm just so proud of you for pushing forward and bringing so much hope to all of us too. I appreciate you sharing. I always ask at the end of every episode, if you have one piece of advice for somebody in a similar situation, what would it be? Yeah. So, you know, I think back about why this journey took so long. And I think part of it is that I never really challenged the doctors when they would tell me, Oh, you're so young. Um, I think now back on it like it doesn't matter if you're 24 or 34 if you want to have a baby you should be encouraged to get the answers as to either why pregnancy isn't happening or why you're having repeated losses I hate that you know women are forced to go through two or three losses before doctors will investigate what's going on I mean obviously there is an issue 
um, and we shouldn't have to be faced with that loss um, so many times repeatedly before we get to find out what's wrong. So um, I think that my piece of advice is to advocate for yourself. I don't think that we're taught enough about our bodies. So learning what you can about yourself is also helpful. Um, and lastly, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably already doing this, but um, the key thing for me is finding your tribe of women who have either faced the same battle or um, can be a, a support system for you and really lean into them. I just want everyone, you know, everyone that's listening to know that you are not alone and that this is not your fault. And one day you'll be able to look back and realize just how strong you are because of all of this. So while I know that um, there were many times when I was listening to these podcasts, I was just rock bottom and I didn't know how things would turn out in the end. And I never liked the whole cliche, like, um, that there's, you know, a rainbow at the end because when you're in the middle of it, it, it just freaking sucks, right? Um, but do know that through all of your pain, that there will be something beautiful. And maybe it's not a baby, um, but there will be something. So just keep going. Absolutely. And if somebody wants to reach out to you, where could they do so? Um, so Instagram is probably the best and my handle is PS Love Mrs. L. Awesome. And I'll link that in the description as well. Thank you so much for doing this this morning. We really appreciate it and best of luck. You'll have to keep this posted. I can't wait to see pictures. Thank you. <laughs> All right. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with a friend who could find it useful or share it on your Instagram stories. Tag myself, tag my guest so that we can personally thank you. This is a lamb fam, you guys. We're not in this alone. We're creating this ripple effect together.